You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Season 6 of Turning to the Mystics, where we've been turning to the mystic Julian of Norwich. And I'm here with Jim to record our final dialogue for Season 6. Welcome, Jim. Yes, yes, good to be back with Julian again. Wonderful. Well, my first question is around the chapter you chose. The first two reflections were on Chapter 10 in the long text. And for this final reflection, you chose chapter five. And I'm just wondering, what was it about that chapter? Yes, I I chose it because uh, it's an example of how all these mystics really uh, understood creation as an ongoing act of God in which God is present, intimately present in each passing moment of our life and our breath, the darkness of the night stones and trees and stars, the smell of flowers, and that it's our estrangement from that that causes our fear and our confusion. And it's through love we can be restored to God's mysterious oneness with us in life itself as a consoling and contemplative way to live in the world. So that's why I chose it. That's really our focus here. Like a a really foundational point that the most of the mystics are trying to make Exactly, exactly. Creation is absolute and perpetual. It's a self-donating act. So if at the count of three, God would cease loving us into the present moment having this dialogue. At the count of three, you and I would disappear because we're nothing, absolutely nothing, apart from the love of God loving us into this moment. But it's our nothingness without God that makes our very presence to be the presence of God. And the experience of that is the contemplative experience. So she talks in a very lovely poetic way that kind of draws us into cultivating the sensitivity about the divinity of the intimacy of everything. That's why I chose it. Wonderful. The two chapters you've chosen, 10 and 5, they're so rich and uh, it's been wonderful to have you unpack them with us. Given this is our last dialogue, for people who have the book and uh, might want to look at the other chapters, are they are they all like this, that you could just sit with them for a long time and there's so much packed into them? She never lightens up. <laughs> it is, I mean, the very first sentence, the very first paragraph, it starts. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's why it's like listening to music. You just stay with her patiently and she... And she she becomes internalized, so you pick up sensitivities. She guides us, trustworthy guidance. And mm-hmm. little by little, this constancy of her God consciousness and life and God's mercy on us and our brokenness. It's all, and that's why you could finish the whole long text and then go back and start over again and just repeat it over and over until you die. And you'd, yeah. never, you'd never exhaust it. You know, the Gospels are like that. And that's what's lovely about her. And then if you care to, on your own, you can read commentaries uh, like Mm -hmm. Grace Jansen's book, Julian of Norwich, and um, Paul Molinari, Julian of Norwich. And if you want to, if you're inclined, you can do the commentaries and come back and look at her. But uh, we're using them here in the podcast as kind of poetic little ways to be touched by the presence of God in our life 
from the first paragraph to the last. She just holds this amazing, really, her mind. I was struck by her words in this chapter where she says, and these words of the goodness of God are very dear to the soul and very close to touching our Lord's will. And it seems that she's very confident in what she's saying, that it's her words, close to touching our Lord's will. And I'm just wondering, one, you know, have you felt like that, Jim, when you're kind of channeling something you've been given and uh, do you see that confidence in her? Yes, I think in the language of these mystics that uh, we're being perpetually created by God as God's beloved. And as God's beloved, God wills for us to realize that we're God's beloved. That is, we're the touch or the taste of God. And when we realize that we're God's beloved, which brings peace, then with it comes God's capacity given to us to say yes to that. So God's our beloved. So we give ourselves in love to the beloved who's infinitely being given to us as beloved's beloved. And that union, that reciprocity, God wants us to experience that because that's our destiny. Mm. On this earth in a veiled way, but it's foreshadowings of eternal life. We'll spend all of eternity in this reciprocity of love. And then when we hear words like this, it's inherently consoling. Do I mean it's, it's very, it's like it's beautiful or we want to sit with it or we become aware of how sad it is that we're not more habitually sensitized to this. And so her writings to sit with her writings, the trustworthy guidance is to stay with it and a little by little by little, it becomes more an underlying habitual sensitivity to how God's unexplainable nearness, like St. Augustine, closer to us than we are to ourselves. And uh, it's a spiritual groundedness as we go through life. Mm-hmm. Do you have that experience sometimes, Jim, when you're writing or teaching, like that, that confidence of... I think for me, to tell you the truth, I just think it's there all the time. Mm. No, I just feel it's like breathe. I can't explain it. It's just like an unquestioned sense of. So when I, Buddhists say, don't grow a second head. You know, if you're frying eggs, don't fry eggs and go in. But, uh, <laughs> so when I'm cooking breakfast, I'm cooking breakfast. But there's an awareness that there's something holy or something that unexplainably matters very much about fixing breakfast. You know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I, I have that. And then when I'm. In silence, where I'm writing or speaking, it comes more uh, vividly conscious. But it's more vividly conscious as something that atmospherically is always there inside of me somehow. I can't explain it, but that's what it feels like. I wanted to turn to one of the central points in this chapter, the hazelnut, and there's quite a bit to unpack with her vision of the hazelnut. Can I start by asking about the, the smallness of it, and you, and you talked about even it could have been a grain of sand, something much smaller. So there's the size of it, but there's there's something else about the smallness. It's it's not just the size, yeah. So the hazelnut could, again could be anything created, mm-hmm. and compared to God, like He has itty bitty baby in His hands, He has a whole wide world in His hands. So we're holding in our hand something small as a hazelnut. She doesn't say what it is. So the idea is it's not just small and that it's physically small, but she says it's small because it is so small. She's amazing. It can continue to exist. 
So really, its smallness is its fragility in time. See, the, how is something so uh, small, so fragile? And so I think the poetic insight is this. Our ego self, our unawakened ego self, is passing through time. It's, it's temporary. We'll all be dead real soon. See? So the ego self that's passing away holds in its hand something that's passing away. See? Because everything's passing away. And yet, in interior contemplative consciousness, that which at one level is passing away is never passing away because it's God pouring out and being given to us in and as that which is passing away in its depth that never passes away. Like we die, but we do not die. See, that that which appears is endlessly passing away. The appearance is passing away, but that which is appearing never passes away because it's eternal in God. So she's inviting us to drop just what meditation is, dropping down in a quiet, like a more interior awareness of and oneness with, more interior depths of the moment in which we're sitting as they drop down into the bottomless abyss of God as a state of oneness, sustaining us right in the moment in which we're sitting. As a, so I think when she lived in her anchor hold in that, the simplicity and the solitude and the silence, it was like a pervasive um, constancy of that sensitivity. And she's writing to us out of that, encouraging mm -hmm. us to do the. It's harder for us out here in the world. We don't live in a cloistered monastery. But I do think we can develop a contemplative culture in our heart. You know, we can learn to establish a daily rendezvous with God, a kind of a sustained sensitivity to the unexplainable mm -hmm. wholeness of our breath or the smell of a flower, the passage of time. We can learn to cultivate that with God's grace. And I think that's what she's inviting us to here. So just to be clear for myself, so it's no bigger than a hazelnut in terms of this metaphor of it's small in relation to life in finite time in a way. But she could be referring to a mountain. Yes. She could be referring to, could she be referring to the whole cosmos? Yes, she would be because if a twig or a grain of sand is nothing without God, loving God's presence, presencing itself into, as the presence of the grain of sand. Since every grain of sand throughout the world is like that, since every tree is like that, mm. since every mountain range is like that, since every flower is like that, then the whole cosmos is that. See? But she's concretely saying, she keeps narrowing it down concretely to the immediacy of our own experience. So the, the palms of my own hands is God's horizon. You know, it's my story, uh, Heidegger talks about a horizon can be the point beyond which we can't see. Like if I go out and look at the ocean out here, the horizon is the point over which I can't see. He said, but the horizon can also be the point in which the unmanifested is manifesting itself. And so the palms of my own hands is God's horizon. My breath is God's horizon. You know, a, a bird uh, and the tree is God's horizon. And she's trying to cultivate the sensitivity to the divinity or the presence of God, presence in the presence of everything. Is it part of her teaching to say that uh, she could be looking at something small and concrete, she could be looking at a mountain, she could be looking at up into the stars and kind of the sense of the whole world. And is part of the smallness, 
its relationship to God's presence and and the way it sits in relation to God as the bigger source of creation of, of it all. Yes, let's put it this way. This would be a way to say it, maybe try to get it. Let's say that um, God is uh, infinite presence itself, and God is beginningless presence. That is, God never, 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 never wasn't, see? and God never, never, never won't be. The Buddhists talk about beyond beginningless beginnings, beyond endless ends, see? and so there's this eternal, oceanic, beginningless, endless. Then God contemplates us in the word eternally forever, hidden with Christ and God before the origins of the universe. So when God says fiat, see, let, there, let there be to the night, let there be fire, let there be water, let there be you. Let, God brings out into manifested reality this moment in which we're talking right now. He brings each of us into time. But the point is this, more the language of Meister Eckhart. He said that the amazing thing about a word, Eckhart says, is that what, say what I know about Julianne of Norwich in myself, in sharing it with you, it doesn't cease to be what it is in me. Likewise, when God speaks us into the present moment, we don't cease to be who we are in God, hidden with Christ in God before the origins of the universe. So it's almost like a contemplation that we taste within ourselves, the self that is beginningless, because God has never, 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 never not known who you are as the beloved in God. And God, has never, never, and God will never cease to know who you eternally are. But we know it in a timeless moment of time. See, Richard Rohr calls it deep time. It's a, it's a moment of the pause, and it's the eternality of the fleetingness, uh, the, the fleeting, the passing away of that which never passes away. And I think that's the poetry of this, I think. It's, you can't grasp it, but you can poetically hear in the language of it something in us knows of it. I mean, is and we long to abide there. You know? Yeah, well, that makes sense too. When you said it's the ego holding the small thing, because both of those things are small in relation to that place where we're hidden in God, like you said. That, yes. Yeah, yeah. But in the deep down depths of ourselves, through the generosity of God, we are that. We are that. So that's yeah. the beloved. Yes. And through, through love and through surrender, through silence and contemplation, we can drop down into the intimacy of that directly. Because they're not separate from each other. They're not no. two distinct things. Yeah. No. yeah. And I, I also think when people would come to see her for spiritual direction, you know, they would come to the window and they, they so look forward to her time, her, because I think in her presence, they sense this within herself. See? And I think she wrote this for us so that we, in sitting with it, we might realize it within ourselves. Do I mean it's a kind of a timeless ministry uh, for us to be touched like this? She talks about the three properties uh, of the the small thing that God made it, God loves it, and God preserves it. But she also says it lasts because God loves it, and and I just love seems to be the central point. And I'm wondering if God making it. God loving it, God preserving it. Is it all an act of love? Is it? Is yes. Is love the foundation. Mm. Could you talk about that? When I was in the monastery studying medieval philosophy with Dan Walsh at Dunscotus and the medieval Thomas Aquinas, one one of the ways he would put it is that uh, before creation, there was no capacity for love in God, because God is octus plurissimus. 
God's the over. If you have a glass on a table and you fill it up with water and it's overflowing, there's no more capacity for water in the cup. So there's no capacity for infinite love in God. Therefore, God creates the capacity for infinite love, and that's you. God creates a kapox dei. God creates, as John of the Cross says this too, God creates a self that God can pour the total, infinite totality of himself into see, as our ultimate identity that God wills for us. See. So what we're learning to do then is how to keep opening our heart wider and wider, to keep surrendering to this love that's surrendering itself over to us and it isn't just that it's surrendering itself over to us in every moment, which is life. It isn't just that it just fleetingly surrenders itself over to us when we fleetingly become conscious of it in a moment of prayer or silence or art or poetry, whatever. But rather, God is perpetually pouring it and will never cease to pour it into us. See, now it's veiled through appearances. But when we pass through the veil of death, we go into unveiled, infinite union of the eternality of ourself, like forever and ever and ever, that everything real is forever, that love is eternal. I love Teresa of Avila, let nothing disturb thee, let nothing frighten thee. All things are passing, God alone remaineth. Patience obtains all things. Just wait long enough, you won't be here, see? <laughs> but who you are in God will be here forever. You know, like, Chill out, relax. This will, all be over. this will all be over before you know it. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean this doesn't matter. It has infinite implications, how we live each moment for love's sake. Yeah, that's, that's helpful and beautiful. And then it makes the next point confusing where she talks about despising as nothing, uh, everything created. It's like she takes a little turn there. And, um, yeah, she does. Let's say, first of all, it's obvious she doesn't mean it the way it might first sound. Yes. Because yes. you wouldn't say, despise the sunset, despise your beating heart, despise the smell of the rose, despise the fresh. She would never think that. What she's saying is this, despise the temptation to imagine there were nothing but the self things happened to. Despise the temptation that anything less then infinite union with the infinite love of God will ever be enough for us. Because because you made us for ourselves, O oh Lord, our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. Not until we rest in your gifts, which all flow from you, but they're infinitely less than you. See? And so despise settling see, for something you can gain or lose. See? Despise settling is that uh, anything that you've done in the past or failed to do in the past has the authority to name who you are. D despise uh, the notion that you are nothing but the self-conditioned by conditioned states. See? And try to find this timeless, depth-like loving presence that permeates and transcends all conditioned states, see? which is very God. And then in the end, what you were saying a little earlier was we can come back around and actually find it in the concrete things, that presence. That's right. Because, see, once I see uh, the nothingness of all things without God, this is not the beloved, this is not the beloved, this is not the beloved. It's in realizing the nothingness without God, we see God shining through as the reality of all things in the nothingness without God. But when we try to, Merton says, through possessiveness of heart, to imagine that there's something there we can have, 
the very notion that it's real apart from God, real to the self that thinks it's real apart from God. This is where suffering arises. But in this seeing the empty, this is why I think when we, um, when we're unraveled by a deep love, where we're unraveled by a moment of the immensity of the nearness of death, where there's, there's certain moments that kind of unravel, you know, the, the customary uh, confines we tend to work in, and in that unraveled state, there's a kind of a boundaryless communion that we realize that alone is ultimately real. But we lived in the claustrophobic world, we can't get, we're trying to be liberated from what hinders us from uh, overflowing appearances into this presence that is the reality of all appearances. And then she she makes that point too right at the beginning where she talks about God is to us everything which is good, which is not saying God only arises in good things, but when you see the presence of God, it's good, and you can you can see it in these. That's right. Yeah, is that that's right? Yes, and I think two things there. One, I use the example sitting out at the chilly morning with the shawl, and knowing that somehow God is the, the nearness of God is concretized in the warmth of that shawl. You know, or in a sip of hot tea, or I mean, whatever you can sense the nearness of God in that. But she's she's also saying something else here too, is that. It's the mystery of the cross. It gets back to her visions. See, the mystery of the cross, the mystery of love crucified, is even in the midst of terrible things, and in the terrible things that really are terrible. We're not romanticizing them. They're really tragic and regrettable. And it's also, it isn't just what was done to us, but what was done to us did to us, how it leaves us walking around with this internalized hurt. We can't, all, all that. But we're saying that as we keep walking this walk, as terrible as it is, it's not just terrible. But there's a love that shines through it. And a lot of the wisdom, I think, as time goes by that we've learned about mercy or fragility or grace has really come out of uh, suffering through something. And we come out the other side, we're grateful when we see it moving behind us. But we're also grateful if we've not learned the wisdom that we we're given there. See? Uh, that there's something, a love that as terrible as it was, it was a sustaining love that was infinitely more real, where we wouldn't even be here anymore. You know, and and uh, and to know that God's not done with this yet. There's more suffering ahead. We don't know what lies ahead, but it'll be more of the same. The grace that flows to the bittersweet alchemy of the rise and fall of everything up to the moment of our own death, kind of trusting the, the underlying divinity that permeates all of it intimately like this. And knowing it in your heart, it's true. You know, that you learn to live by it. I like how when we started talking about suffering, some suffering noise started up in the background. <laughs> it did. Is that a leaf blower? Yeah, it's another leaf blower in the neighborhood. Friday apparently is leaf blower day. We should remember that. By the way, there's two ways to look at this. Again, it's, it, it really is regrettable. We and the listeners wished it wasn't there. But you know what else? That person running the leaf blower is trying to feed his family. See, that counts. See, he's trying to get through another day because that's how he lives. You know? And so if I would yell out the window, you know, shut up, don't you see you're disrupting a mystical system here? <laughs> <You> go, 
what the hell? What, is, what are you saying? And so that shows you how something is regrettable, but you can see that it's not just regrettable. You know, there's always the other, everything has that quality to it, I think. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, with that in mind, Jim, do, do the, the things that make us suffer, do they have those same three properties? God made it, God loves it, God preserves it? I want to say something about suffering. Mm-hmm. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. There, there is this suffering. Being on this path means you're called to be an awake, a nurturing, caring, protective person who does not deliberately do anything to cause suffering or to be indifferent to the suffering of the world. That's the, the, the imperative of love. That's true. It's how Christ walked this earth. When suffering is present, the measure of the authenticity of this depth is a heightened sensitivity of being called or impelled to reach out to touch the suffering with love that it might dissolve in love. And the way that we're called to do it. She was called to do it by living in solitude writing this. See, you know? And so in the midst of our family, the midst of our situation. And when we do do love's work, we realize that in the touch of love, some of the suffering comes back through the touch, we can get overwhelmed. So we owe it to ourselves and to the one we're helping how to pace ourselves to back away enough, but not to keep running away, to get be grounded in love, to come back again and continue touching with love. That's love's work. And an inner peace is not dependent on the outcome of the effort, because by human standards, it may go down in flames, see? but rather because it's the peace of God on which everything depends, and that's the mystery of the cross. See, the mystery of the cross is that by human standards, it was over. And it was over. He was executed and he died. And um, as we said in the previous talk, when he died, they pierced his heart with a lance and blood and water flowed out like at the birth of a child. And then there was no more Jesus left in Jesus. And then the only Jesus that was ever really there shined bright throughout the whole world to this day. So when Jesus says, follow me, it sounds like a good idea till we see where he's taking us, which is the cross, the, which is the crucifixion. How to die of love at the hands of love till there's nothing left of us but love, which is, alone is eternal, real, vast, and true. And uh, that's universally intimate to all of us because it unfolds in my life and unfolds in your life. You know, we're trying to walk with fidelity to that. And I think that's where she's coming from. That's a m- main point of her teaching, is it, Jim? Because she really does focus on the cross as her starting All the way through. point. Yeah, yeah, that love is his meaning. See, we, we see the exterior. That's why um, uh, there's certain things uh, at one level that appear one way. But you look deeper, they're very different. So something that one level really is, for example, terrible, for example, the violent death and the cruelty of it. But you look deeper here, the very thing that one level really is cruel and violent is the deliverance of the whole world unexplainably to the deathless nature of love, taking us to itself in all our wayward ways, in all of our brokenness. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Another point she makes in this chapter about the way we come to God, and I think it's building on what you've been sharing about suffering, but this this way of coming, as she calls, with the nakedness. Being naked, it's such a physical word, 
but we're talking about some kind of interior experience. Is that right, Jim? Yes, let's say, here's how I see she's put this chapter together. She's given all this talk almost like uh, flowing out from God, like the nature reality through love. And then she's saying, and this being so, that is, since God's love is like this, this moment, this also suggests that if this is how God's coming to us so unexplainably, it then suggests how God would have us come to God. And so naked, at one sense, it's such a physical, and I use the example of marital love, but marital love in the sense of not every married couple has this, where it isn't just that they're comfortable being physically naked, but they're naked in that they're seen through and through, just as they are with all their limitations like this. Being free to be loved just as you are, with nothing to hide behind, like you're free like this. This is why I think in AA where they talk about a fearless inventory of your past. A fearful inventory is you already know enough bad things about yourself you, you, and wonder what else is back there. A fearless inventory doesn't matter what's back there. It's just more of you that God's infinitely loves through and through and through. And your acceptance of your limitation is the condition for that love. It's the good news. Really, So it's that nakedness, which is a kind of, because God sees it all anyway. God's not trying to figure out who you are as if that works, you know. And uh, it's like when God came in the cool of the evening, they hid, as if that would help, you know, after the fall. (laughs) I don't think you two get to grasp the situation here. So so I think, but then I also think we can learn to be naked with ourselves. Like it's hard to admit the extent to which the self can hide itself from itself. And what is it we can't bear to see because we believe it has authority to name who we are? But how can I feel safe enough? Sometimes it's in the presence of someone in whose presence it's safe to let ourselves see it because they already do. And little by little, we can become more and more interiorly naked. That doesn't mean at another level, we don't need to be discreet about what we share or don't share. You know, because we, it's very important, really. So this nakedness is this inner freedom I think, to be unclothed in the presence of this love. See? And then we do it openly and no secrets. See, there's nothing hidden because God is given to us intimately. Uh, the whole God's given to us forever. And therefore, uh, we're to be very open and receptive and open and what open to the next thing love might ask of us. We don't know what love's going to ask, but we're just, whatever that is, with God's grace, I'm open to that. And then, and familiar means, uh, one translation of the word is homely. Homely doesn't mean not attractive, but homely as in very domesticated, as the person you're so comfortable with. Being alone and being with each other is the same thing. It's so ordinary and so comfortable in the rhythms of the day with each other, and God's that way with us. See, that we're so habitually comfortable in the ordinariness of getting up in the morning and going to bed at night and uh, the rhythms of the day. God's the infinity of the rhythms of the day, you know, of it. And we're trying to move that way, I think. What's coming to me is, in this reflection, is, uh, you know, out here in the world, you have to be very careful with nakedness. Like, we need good boundaries. You've got to know who who you're with and appropriate times and things like that. So there's there's something about um, a starting point of trust and, uh, you know, a trust in God, in being God's beloved, that I can come boundaryless because it's safe 
it's loving, it's compassionate, it's and and there's nothing to fear. Yes, you know, I think this is what makes uh, child abuse so terrible, is the child is in a vulnerable state yes. of the parent to trust. And then when the parent betrays that through their own woundedness, either physically, emotionally, or sexually, is so the devastating effects of that, you know. And um, there is a sense of interiorly open, wise as a serpent and simple as a dove. Is this person safe to share this with? Would they even be capable of understanding it? Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before a swine. See? Don't be very careful with the treasure and don't uh, expose yourself to people, the sense of wise boundaries, but the boundary should be porous. We should always be opening and look for the opening where we send out a little trial to see if it works or not and pull back and look. So this kind of discretion, this kind of mature adult discretion about uh, each person, each situation is important. We end up getting deeply hurt, you know, over and over again. But God's not like that. And that's that, That's sometimes the challenging transition for people, isn't it? To, to move into this nakedness with God is even somatically like a, it's a challenge to let go of themselves into and trust in, in a loving presence. See, yeah, that's why I say, you know, it's like one prayer we're afraid to say is thy will be done. Mm. It's a strange idea in a way, but I think it's true. It's like thy will be done. And God goes, okay, you asked for it. Brace yourself. Here comes a terrible, <laughs> terrible thing. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so if God is really... Uh, infinite uh, tenderness and generosity forever. Like I, the image I use is a field with no stones in it. See, it's safe. But the thing is, if we've been hurt, and if we're being kind of taken by love into love, like we're like our boundaries at a psychological level, our boundaries are slipping away. Is this possible that I can be safe and vulnerable at the same time? Can I? What is it to taste this mercy sustaining me? And it's especially complicated because what it does is it, it triggers our own trigger points inside and trigger, it activates certain things where we're really uh, activating certain uh, less than loving voices about ourself. And we might attribute those to God, but really, it's really it's, this is the art of spiritual direction or discernment, how to tease this out and work through all of that. And at one point you talked about your life in the monastery, that every detail was intended to foster this kind of nakedness and a, a spiritual worldview and, and an understanding of God's oneness with us. But out in the world we have to cultivate this, you said, a contemplative culture in our heart. Can you talk about some of the aspects in the monastery and how they might translate into our lives? When I was in the monastery, cloistered monasteries, there was no television, no radio, no newspapers. Like, uh, I was cloistered. Some of the monks, when I was there, this is 1968, like that's 60, I mean, when I graduated, it was 1961 when I entered. So some of the monks entered before they invented television, says they never saw television. And there was no magazines outside. So, so one of the monks gave a talk to the monks in the chapter room on a, on a major feast day. But they did have the library. They had biblical journals and theological journals. He said, in one of the journals in the library, I read a poem by this person named Bob Dylan. He said, I don't know who Bob Dylan is. Never heard of him. He said, it was a great poem. And he said, though his understanding was called Desolation Row. And he said, it's the, un the ending of a relationship, and you know it's because of you it's falling up. You live on Desolation Row. 
He says, you know, every day we send facing each other in choir chanting the Psalms back and forth, back and forth. At the end of each Psalm, they all bow over, glory be to the Father, to the Son. And um, as I stand there looking across the aisle like this, you wouldn't know this because we don't talk to each other, but I'm having a hard time living here. And we're chanting the Psalms, I look across the aisle at the reason why it's so hard, it's all of you giving me a hard time. And then I realize maybe you're looking across the aisle and maybe I'm contributing to your problems. It's not working here. We're chanting on Desolation Row. <laughs> but at the end of every song, we bow over, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Like we, we fulfill each other's burdens and so fulfill the will of Christ. See, it's in our communal brokenness that the mercy of Christ shines through us. And so chanting on Desolation Row is... A, a poetic way to look at life. You know, there's something, there's always something unresolved, something that hurts from another person or the past or so. And so it's not working if we depend on figuring this out on our terms and making it all work. It never does. But if we can rest with this merciful love that permeates and sustains us in all that's unresolved and all that hurts, there's a certain tenderness to the edges of it all. And we can learn to trust in that and live by that. And yeah, it's kind of, it, there's a lot of resetting of expectation. Exactly. And, and commitment. And I guess that's done very intentionally when you enter the monastery. It's quite clear why you're there, what your intention is, what your commitments are. It, it is. But here's the thing I would say. In married love, that's the intention too. When two people get married, they don't stand at the altar and say, I promise you to make life perpetually miserable for you through my resentments, my jealousy, my anger, my withholding. Well, I promise to give you a hard time by bickering. And yet even though they married each other to love each other, they brought into the marriage the hurts they brought with them and they acted out on each other. But there's built right into, like mystical marriage, it's built right into it. If you pull each other's covers and stay real and honest with each other, you sift each other like wheat if you let it. Sometimes you need professional help to sort through certain things. So marriage has built right into it by God a certain kind of incarnational tenderness or mercy or forgiveness or patience, whatever. It's the same with parenting. It's the, in other words, there's a certain underlying inherent rhythm, and we can learn to drop down through uh, broken off places to settle into continuity with the rhythms and live by that. And then we can have a contemplative culture in our heart, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah. And how about Jim referring back to this idea um, about God loves and preserves all things? Is, is there a kind of practice where we might uh, see how do we translate that sense of God's being in, in created things? Well, here's one way I see it. I'm sitting here now having this talk with you. A few months from now, I'll be 80 years old. And I'm sitting here with all these books on the mystics all around me. We're talking. And I'm sitting here with the sensitivities that we're sharing with each other. And knowing this is touching people listening to this. And if I ask myself, how is this possible? Like, how did I get here? You know, I mean, a traumatized child from Akron, Ohio, you know? I mean, seriously, seriously. And therefore, I think you look back at your own life up till now, like thousands of painful cul-de-sacs, stumbling this way and that, and this way and that. But somehow, we're on a journey not of our own making. 
Thomas Merton, he was saying this in the Catholic tradition, every time you receive the Eucharist, you must realize that someone's taking perfectly good care of you. So I think to hear language like this and have it touch our heart, someone's taking perfectly good care of us. And we can just sit and be amazed by the unfolding of things like that. And I think that's what this kind of reading does for us, with this prayer does for us. It drops down into the deeper place where the currents of these grace rhythms flow, and we can learn to be more and more habitually sensitized to that. Yeah, that's beautiful. And so we might listen to these words, and at the end of the podcast, I have a tree outside my window and just sit uh, gazing at the tree and sensing, you know, God's presence in the tree, creating the the beauty of the tree, the treeness of the tree. <laughs> no, it's really true. You know, I live here at the ocean. I have a little patio and some flowers. And uh, for several years, I had a little hummingbird feeder, and not a single hummingbird ever. So I went out and got a bigger blown glass hummingbird feeder, and I hung it more toward the edge of the porch. And I sit out there in the mornings and I write. I do my writing. And a hummingbird visits every morning. You know, hummingbirds are like little jewels. You know, they just they hover. I watch the hummingbird. So little things like that, you know, we can see a certain depth of like unexplainable beauty, like the incomprehensible stature of simple things, intimately realized, and life is woven with those. And we can learn to see those everywhere if we look close enough. So Julian says, I can never have perfect rest or true happiness until I am so attached to him that there can be no created thing between my God and me. And I'm wondering, is this possible, this kind of rest, this true happiness? Is this possible while we're in our finite bodies in time? In mystical union, when we pass through the veil into glory, what happens sometimes, God doesn't wait until we're dead to access us infinitely. That's the mystic union. And so uh, even though you're not dead yet, that is, you've not biologically died, through the grace of God, you've interiorly died to everything less than the infinite love of God as the sole basis of your security and identity. So it is possible, otherwise she couldn't have written this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she bears witness. See, my heart has not deceived me. See, my heart, I'm sitting in the presence of someone in whom bears witness this is possible. But I think it's possible in this sense that a person can come to this habitual oneness and live by it when they're still in time. But they live by it when they're still in time in the midst of the hazards of the day. So when I discovered the lawn blower was going on because I didn't close the window, you know, I was good natured about it, but because I didn't want to swear in front of all these people, they would go, <laughs> I, I didn't want to scandalize the listeners, you know, by uh, uh, berating myself out loud with self loathing, <laughs> stupidity. So I, I was nonchalant about it. But the point is, uh, I think that's the bittersweet alchemy. See, that somehow even the ups and downs of the unresolved, our own, everyone has their own little patterns. Mm -hmm. See, that even that is shot through with grace. You know, and um, Thomas Merton once said in the monastery to me in direction, he says, you know, this whole path is as serious as death. And that's why without a sense of humor, you won't make it. <laughs> you just won't make it. You, we need to be kind of lighthearted toward taking the folly of ourselves seriously. Mm. It's like our teacher, 
Yes. You know, and somehow God's infinitely present in the foolishness itself. You know, that's what I think it's like. Yeah. Yeah. So in a way, that rest is is uh, rest from reactivity. We're, we're not so reactive to exactly. I would define it even more. It's rest from reactivity, including rest from not being peaceful. To we can stop being reactive. It's rest from reactivity in the very midst of reactivity. Reactiv- yes. Tignan yeah. Han says, "Hello, habit energies. There's certain habits, and when they get triggered, hello, habit energies. Like there I go again, being me." Even when I spilled the coffee or some crazy thing. But there's a certain delight in that. There's a certain. And notice when someone like loves a child very much, or say someone you love very much has died, what you cherish is the simple, uh, inimitable qualities of their presence. It's just the immediacy of ourselves as we are, like the divinity of the unresolved kind of charm of it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, much more about what it was like to be in their presence and. Yeah, how you felt connected to them and, yeah. Exactly. And then not only is there that way of seeing that, our relationship with them that way, but there's the self-relationships to itself. How can I learn to appreciate myself that way? And join God in being charmed by my foibles. You know what I mean? <laughs> like to roll the waves of it because it's like that. Yes. So the the rest you may still be reactive, but you don't double down on yourself and is then that, be annoyed yeah. at you as you begin to see yourself more clearly. Because that is part of this path, isn't it, Jim, that things that were unconscious and you were kind of merged in with, you begin to see them. And so the opportunity is to offer yourself love and compassion or, like, like you said, some humor versus doubling down and being, now I see my reactivity, now I can be extra frustrated and reactive to my reactivity. That's why I use that example in the Merton talk where, let's say the issue you've been working on all your life is a temper. And you're in the hospital and your last act on this earth is throwing a bedpan and then you die. Then I say, this is regrettable. You're hoping for a better exit. But the real question, did you throw it knowing God loves people who throw bedpans? God loves people who don't. See? Mm-hmm. Or did you die yes. in the idolatry of attainment? That doesn't mean we don't need to take responsibility for our growing edges because t- we do. But the peace isn't dependent on the extent to which we're able, the thorn in the flesh, where God told Paul, leave it there. Because that unresolved thorn in the flesh, the stumbling place, you know, is uh, your realization of how I'm present in your life is mercy. She talks about the will, you know, she's talking about uh, the soul, when by its will has become nothing for love. What is the role of the will and, and how would we experience that? Well, here's an example I use from married love, put it this way. Let's say you're, you, you've been for many years in this relationship, this deeply loving relationship. And let's say someone that, say, you went to high school with hasn't seen you in years. It comes to town and visits, and you tell them about this person, this relationship. You say, oh, really? Tell me. So you, you describe the person and your, their qualities and what it is. And the person says, no, I don't mean that. I don't mean that. Who is it? that so moves you in knowing who this person is and your love for this person. And um, you don't know what to say, and your heart breaks when you try. See, I think that's love. And I also think, I get the feeling to expand this out, I think when every poet or every artist or every healer, there's that certain breaking point where the very presence is something uh, unsayable, and unmanageable, 
is giving itself in the generosity of the love that keeps moving you forward. See, Otherwise, it's just crafts. I mean, you're putting pegs in the holes and lining things up. But there's something, Merton once said, we should get down on our knees right now and thank God we can't live the way we want to. You can't love and live on your own terms. But when you learn to live by love, you live on love's terms, which sifts us like wheat, keeps breaking us open unexplainably. And I think that's... See, God's the infinity of that. And so the the role of the will is to keep saying yes to that. I think the will, on the one hand, I keep willing to keep doing my best to overcoming the habits that hurt me and other people. It's an ongoing thing. I have to be sincere about that and work on that. And the will is also to do what love calls me to do for my body, my mind, this person, the family, this moment is true. But also my will is to die to my own will as the final say in determining God's infinite will for me. See? For God wills for me the infinity of herself. God wills for the infinity of himself. See? And that's infinitely beyond my own will. And that's the mystery of it, I think. Is where my bread is to do the will of the one who sent me and uh, the infinite beloved. And we're surrendering to that infinite love will that overwhelms and transforms and guides our will. And we will to move in accordance with that. It reminds me of what we were talking about earlier, how she talks about you need to despise the created thing, but also then later you see God's goodness in the created thing. It's it's similar with the will. We need to kind of let go of, of the will as having the final say on who we are, but will our will towards God's love and God's infinite, yeah. Exactly. That we are, are used closing the window as an example. When, when the stumbling event happens, in the immediacy of it, we, we, we can get reactive. Merton once said, we should always meditate on when we get discouraged after a failing. He said, because the discouragement after a failing reveals our secret agenda, a holy me. As I, I'm trying to live up to some standard. See? And every time I'm not there yet, I get disheartened. I'm not still as holy as I thought I was. But if instead, every time we stumble, we catch ourselves instead of placing our confidence in the ability to measure up to this measureless love that sustains us in our inability to measure up. See, That's the thing, I think. About Jesus. That's really helpful as a practice. Yeah. I'm going to start that today. So it's meditating when I feel that sense of um, condemning myself or being frustrated with myself or being, that's a time to take a pause and notice what my own agenda or my own voice is saying that might be different to knowing myself as beloved and infinitely loved. That the issue really isn't who my father thought I was, who my mother thought I was, or my spouse, or my lover, or my parents. The really is issue isn't who I think I am. Can I join God, who God eternally knows me to be, hidden with Christ and God forever? See? And I realize that every time I get reactive, I've lost touch with that. See? And then I have to say, but then I have to be tender-hearted towards, we catch ourselves in the act of perpetuating violence on the part of us that needs to be loved the most. The reactivity is a still unhealed hurting place. We need, because like, where did that come from? See, how far back do I have to go to trace the origins of the tripping place? 
And how can I be more tender-hearted towards it and more insightful towards it? And I think both, the whole thing's important that way. Yeah. Well, we're coming to a close, Jim, and uh, this is the, this is the end of season. Our dialogues in season six will will take questions from listeners um, in a final session. But how are you feeling about this season? I feel very good about it. I just it just this whole thing's been a grace to me. These sessions and to be able to share these mystics that had such a big effect on me to know that it's touching and helping people. It's been a real grace for me. Have you enjoyed being back with Julian? Very much so. Like I said, I said this at the beginning, unlike John of the Cross and Teresa and Eckhart and some of these other people, some Zen masters and so on, she, she wasn't someone that I ever really sunk deeply into. Mm-hmm. I've been aware, I've been in her hermitage a couple of times, aware of her. I spent a year with her at the sitting group and uh, very aware. So this was a chance for me as kind of a beginner, mm. I guess, to kind of very prayerfully walk real slow through uh, just the depth and beauty of her mind. She's an amazing woman to me. She's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. I've just I've really felt her presence. Yeah, yeah. very it's much beautiful. so. Beautiful. Yeah, really. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Jim, for another wonderful season and for all that you're doing for us. We're grateful for the sharing yes and and thank you for some of the people comment on that our dialogues are so helpful today was a good example of facilitating the process by certain questions Mm -hmm. i think really helps to move it along and gives it a certain substance that it didn't have before so thank you for that and corey's behind the scenes and many thanks to corey Corey. too for making it possible that way okay wonderful okay good thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.